0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well good morning Anchor, my name is Brad Koneman, that was my son Reuben, he's gorgeous. Uh, I'm the Gospel Communities Pastor here at Anchor and part of the Forest Lodge GC. Uh, this morning, as I walked out the door, Re- Reuben gave me this bit of paper, scrunched, he scrunched it up, scrunched it up, gave it to me, put it in my bag and said, Daddy, use this to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? So that's what we're going to be doing this morning, not using this, but using, using this. Uh, we're going to continue our series through the manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' vision of what it looks like to be one of his people, one of his disciples in the kingdom of God, and we're going to be focusing on prayer. Now there's a religious impulse in all of us, a prayer reflex, even for the non-religious. You know, you go out into nature and you experience awe and wonder as you look out over the valley or the mountains. We've all got this instinct to express gratitude when good things happen and when it all hits the fan, we turn to prayer, don't we? When there's a tragedy, our public figures stand up in front of the cameras and what do they say? Our thoughts and prayers are with you. Prayer is instinctive for all of us, and it's a basic practice of every religion. But who feels like they're killing it at prayer? Is there anyone out there who feels like, man, I'm, I'm doing so good at prayer? I think if we're honest, we're not actually very good at prayer. Most of us struggle. Prayer is hard. It feels boring. We lose concentration. We think, man, I, am I just talking to the sky? Is anything happening here? It's never been harder to pray than in 2018. We're surrounded by digital distractions. You know, we've got no more little moments for prayer. If we're waiting in a line, what do we do? Get our phone out. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we've got a screen in front of us, we're constantly distracted. There's no more boredom, no more little moments to pray. Now, this is an issue for leaders and pastors as well. I read this recently a confession of a pastor. He says, Look, I may be a pastor, but I'm an inch deep. My life is filled with incessant activity and little prayer. We hear stories of people throughout history rising at some ungodly hour in the morning to spend hours in prayer and we feel guilty that we can't do it for two minutes. Now, I can easily stand up here and make you feel guilty for not praying enough. That's easy. And that's normally how I feel when I hear a sermon on prayer. I'm like, oh man, I suck at this. I'm so bad at prayer. I need to do better. I need to try harder. I need to work on this. I feel so guilty. But guilt is never a good motivator. And the main thing I want us to see today is that Jesus doesn't give us a new technique or tip to pray better, to approach God, but Jesus gives us a new relationship to enjoy with God. This is the key to understanding prayer. Now, for Jesus, prayer was vital. He withdrew from the crowds throughout his life and ministry to spend time with his Father. Prayer wasn't just part of his life. Prayer was his life. He lived his whole life in intimate communion with, in complete dependence upon, and in perfect obedience to his Father in heaven. So there's no one better to teach us how to pray than the Lord Jesus. So we're going to be continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. We're up to Matthew 6. Uh, Verse 5, if you've got your Bibles, get them out, or your phones, the verses will be on the screen. But before we begin, uh, I'm going to pray for us and ask God to help us. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you will speak to us clearly and powerfully through your word and by your spirit. That you'd show us the privilege it is to call you Father. That you would shape our lives and our hearts to be concerned about your concerns, about your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to get your Bibles out or your phones. We're going to be looking at Matthew 6, verses 5 to 15, and we're going to see three things. We're going to see the how, the who, and the what of prayer. The how, the who, and the what of prayer. So first, how to pray or how not to pray. Second, who do we pray to? Third, what to pray. So the how, the who and the what of prayer. Now where are we up to in the Sermon on the Mount? We've seen six case studies of what it looks like to be salt and light as God's people throughout chapter 5. And then from chapter 6 verse 1, if you've got your Bible in front of you, Jesus turns to warn us about the danger of religious hypocrisy in the areas of giving, prayer and fasting. Next week we're going to be having a sermon on the issue of hypocrisy. Steady's going to be preaching to us. Today we're zeroing in on prayer how to pray or how not to pray. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 5. Just before we read that, uh, Jesus gives two negative examples here of how not to pray. So the first one is, don't pray like the hypocrites. The second one is, do not pray like the Gentiles. So we're looking at the first one. Do not pray like the hypocrites. In verse chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says, "...and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites." For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So Jesus diagnoses a problem with their heart motive that leads to a problem with their practice. So, what's the problem with their heart motive? Well, they want to be seen by others, they want to get praise as their reward from people. So, what do they do? They stand up on a stage to pray in front of others so that people think that they're amazing. Now, the church is full of hypocrites, isn't it? This is a problem for me and for us. Now, you might not be looking for a stage to get up and pray on, but when you do pray, are you worried about what other people think of you? You know, if you're praying in GC or if you come to a pre gathering prayer meeting, do you rehearse your prayer in your head as you're getting ready to pray, making sure it sounds good and that you're saying the right things rather than praying along with the other people? Jesus wants us to see that prayer is not a performance. Prayer is spending time with our Father. And so he tells us what to do in verse 6. He says, but when you pray, what should we do? Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray in secret so others can't see you. Now, Jesus isn't outlawing prayer meetings. We shouldn't get rid of Amy and her ministry that she oversees, helping us to pray with other people. Now, as we'll see, we pray to Our Father. Prayer is a corporate community activity. We pray together with friends. What Jesus is saying is, watch your motives? Guard your heart. Prayer is not about the eloquence of your words, but about the authenticity of your heart. So when you pray, make sure that you're praying authentically to God, not to everyone else in the room, not to impress others. Now, just as Jesus withdrew to desolate places, to secret places where the crowds couldn't find him... Pray to his father, so we too, we need to find our secret place where we can spend time with our father alone, somewhere quiet, private, without distractions, with our phones off. So let me ask you, where is your secret place? When is your secret place? Is it in the morning, or at lunchtime or at night? Is it sitting at the dining table or in a nice armchair in your living room, or in the shower? Is it on the train, in the bus? in the car? Is it journaling in a cafe, walking to the office? It's going to look different for all of us. You've got to find what works for you. And what matters is not the technique or the time or the place. What matters is that prayer is authentic. Spending time with your Father, not a performance for other people. So do not pray like the hypocrites. Second, do not pray like the Gentiles. Have a look at verse 7 and 8. Jesus says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So the Gentiles are treating prayer like some kind of magic formula or incantation. They think, if I say the right words the right amount of times, God's going to hear me. If I say my ten Hail Marys, God's going to hear me. If I say the same prayer five times a day, God's going to hear me. And Jesus' diagnosis is that this is mindless babble. Whatever your religion, you can pray in such a way that your mouth is moving, but your head and your heart are disengaged. So instead of mindless babble, Jesus teaches that prayer should be simple and mindful. And we see an example of this in 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah, the prophet Elijah in Israel's history, confronts the prophets of Baal. So Israel had turned away from Yahweh, their God, turned away to worship Baal. And the prophet Elijah calls the nation to turn back to God and he challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest. They go up on Mount Carmel, they set up two altars uh, with a bull on each altar and whichever God answers the prayers of, by fire wins. It's like some cosmic game show. So the 450 prophets of Baal go first, and they spend all morning shouting and screaming and crying out and cutting themselves and raving on and on and on all morning, 450 of them, nothing, silence, nothing happens. And then Elijah, just one, one man, gets up and prays a simple, mindful prayer. He says this, Answer me, O Yahweh that this people may know that you are God. And what happens? (sighs) Fire from heaven that burns the altar and the bull and the stones and the the wood and all the water that Elijah had poured over. The simple, mindful prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So God doesn't want mindless, babble, empty phrases, magic words. God wants simple, mindful prayer. So instead of the attention seeking performance of the Pharisees and the mindless babbling of the Gentile pagans, Jesus teaches that prayer ought to be authentic, mindful time with our Father. So that's the who, the how of prayer. Now we come to the who of prayer in chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says this Pray then like this Our Father in heaven. Now this is where I want us to spend most of our time this morning, on that one word, Father. Because this is the most fundamental and revolutionary thing that Jesus wants to teach us about prayer. Jesus doesn't give us a new technique for approaching God. Jesus gives us a new relationship to enjoy with God. Now Jesus experienced extraordinary intimacy with God throughout his life, calling him Father even from his childhood in the temple in Jerusalem. His favourite name for God was Abba, Papa, Daddy, Baba. A title of extraordinary intimacy that an infant calls out to to his father. At Jesus' baptism and transfiguration, he hears the voice of his father from heaven cry out, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The intimacy that we see Jesus enjoying with his Father throughout his earthly ministry reveals the intimacy that the Trinity has, has experienced in its eternal relationship throughout all eternity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit united in an eternal life of mutual love, a perfect community. Now just as Jesus called God his Father, he invites us to do the same. Jesus is inducting us into his own relationship with God. The intimacy that the beloved Son of God experienced with His Father throughout all eternity can now be yours through Christ. So every time that we pray our Father in heaven, we're declaring that we have an intimate relationship with God, that we dare to call Him Father, Abba, Papa. Now this was always God's intention. God made us to share His perfect life with us. In the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with God. They saw him face to face. They were friends with God. But as in any friendship, if you neglect the relationship, Adam and Eve turned their backs on God. They walked away from him and destroyed their relationship with him. And we do the same thing. We think we'll be better off without him, not seeing that our choice to live our own way is really a poison pill that ends in death. We're estranged from God, alienated from God, cut off digging our own graves. But God loves us too much to let us throw our lives away. We're like spiritual orphans. We're like those rat bag kids that rebel against any sort of authority. No one wants them. No one loves them. But God loves us. God wants us. He's signed the adoption papers in his blood. And for everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, he's given us the right to become children of God. He's given us his Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, the seal on our hearts that we are children of God. Our adoption as children of God is truly the highest privilege of the gospel. In Christ, we are invited into God's family as sons and daughters with all the privileges that come from being children and heirs of the King. So every time we pray, our Father in heaven, We're declaring that we are dearly loved children of God. Now, God is not some reluctant, distant deity. The God of heaven is our Father, and we have access to the throne room of God as his dearly loved children. Tim Keller says this, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3am for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Now, has anyone here been to the White House, the home of the President of the United States of America, the Commander-in-Chief of America's Armed Forces? It's a secure building, right? You go on a tour and you only get access to some parts. There's ro- areas that are roped off. There's security guards stopping you from going in. Well, How did this kid get into the Oval Office? Can everyone see him? Am I in the way? How did that little kid get in there? There's been some kind of security breach. You can't just waltz into the Oval Office. There's security trying to keep you out. Well, the only way that you can get into the Oval Office and play underneath, underneath the President's desk is if you are his son. This is the highest office in America, the commander and chief of the Defence Force of America. And his son is playing at his feet We worship the commander and chief of the universe and we have access to his office to play at his feet because we are his children. We're not a nuisance or a distraction. We are God's delight. Every time we pray our Father in heaven, we're declaring that we have confidence to draw near to God because God is always accessible, always available to his children. Now, it's one thing to know this, to know, yeah, sure, God's my father but it's another to functionally believe this and for this reality to shape how you live. J.I. Packer writes this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. So how do you talk to God? How you address God reveals a lot about what you believe about him. Do you say, dear God, Dear Lord, Almighty God, Holy God, all of those things are true. But if you cannot call God your Father, then maybe you functionally believe that God is distant and inaccessible and you're not worthy to come into his presence. You've got to pull, you think maybe I've got to pull my socks up, got to do better, try harder to be good enough to come before God. But Jesus wants the truth that God is our Father and that we are his dearly loved children to take deep root in our hearts, to be the foundation of our identity so that we live from our Father's acceptance that we already have in Christ rather than striving to prove ourselves. Now, to be honest, this is easier for some of us than others. The thought of God as our Father can be really painful for many of us because of our own relationship with our human Father's. Some of us have had great dads, dads who were present and attentive and loving and interested in us, dads who not only loved us but liked us and wanted to spend time with us. But others of us have had more negative experience of our human father. At best, they were present but emotionally disengaged or at worst, you might not have had a dad or he might have been abusive. And so it's hard for many of us to believe that God is a good father because we project our negative experiences of our earthly father onto him. But I want you to hear this clearly. God is not like your biological father. Even the best fathers fall short of the fatherhood of God. It's not that your father shows us what God is like, but that God shows us what fatherhood should be like. Human fathers are measured and fall short of the perfect fatherhood of God. God wants us to see and and believe and live out of the reality that God is our loving, generous, faithful, merciful, good and kind Father who knows what we need and loves to lavish good gifts on His children. Jesus wants us to approach God like little children approach their Father. Now when I get home in, in the afternoon from the office, I put my key in the front door, and the kids can hear it like as soon as I put the key in. And like from the back room, I hear them, Daddy! And like they storm to the front door and I scoop down and scoop them into my arms. They're just so happy that I'm home and I'm so happy to see them. This is what our relationship with our Father is like. He loves us. He delights in us. And we run into his arms to enjoy relationship with him. Because prayer is not a technique that we use to win the year of a reluctant deity. Prayer is a privilege for those who are children of the Father. This is the key for understanding prayer. And this is the distinctive feature of Christian prayer, that we call God our Father. Do you sense what a privilege that is, church? That this holy, almighty God welcomes you into his presence as his children? Has that hit your heart? What a privilege that God our Father bends his knee and scoops you into his arms, that he sent his son across the universe to welcome you home. What a privilege. The how, the who, and now the what of prayer. So Jesus goes on here in Matthew 6 to teach us how to pray, what to pray in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer used by the church for over 2,000 ye- years, as Anato was saying, the climax and center of the sermon on the mount this is this is the this is the center of the sermon on the mount and it's one of the most profound things that has ever been written now we could really do a whole sermon series on the lord's prayer and break it up clause by clause magnifying glass on each line on each word and i think that'd be a great thing to do uh, to have a sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. Matt, maybe we should schedule that in in the next few years. Uh, But today we're just going to be looking at it from 10,000 feet, kind of big picture, what's the focus and priorities of this prayer. And we'll see that Jesus' prayer is clearly divided into two sections. So the first section focuses on God and his kingdom, and the second section focuses on our needs. And this division reflects the division of the Ten Commandments and also the two greatest commandments, to love God first and to love your neighbour. So God's kingdom first, and then our needs. So first off, God's kingdom in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when most of us pray, we start with our own needs, don't we? You know, we rattle off our shopping list to God. I've lost my keys, I need a new job, my kids are driving me crazy. God, help me. Now, God God is not unconcerned about these real needs. The whole second half of the Lord's Prayer is focused on practical needs and cultivating an everyday humble dependence on God. But Jesus is teaching us here, right at the start of the Lord's Prayer, to shift our focus off ourselves, to focus on the coming kingdom of God. Now, our personal kingdoms are always being threatened by God's kingdom. When Jesus arrives on the scene... He comes preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near and he calls people, repent. Jesus turns our worlds upside down. His his kingdom is disruptive. He calls us to change, to change our allegiance, to change what we believe, to change what we love, to change what we do. And as we pray the Lord's Prayer, we lift our eyes off ourselves and reorientate our lives around what God's doing in the world through his kingdom. And we learn that our life is not about, it's not about me. The life you've been given is a gift from God to be used for his purposes. So real prayer is not about twisting God's arm and getting him to do what you want, to submit to your will. Real prayer is about submitting yourself to God's will. And we see this perfectly modelled for us by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing what's coming. Knowing the cross, the pain, the suffering, the curse that he's about to bear, he prays to God, take this cup from me. He comes to God, pours his heart out, he's real about the struggle. And then he prays, yet not my will but yours be done. God's kingdom comes when his will is done. So church, are your prayers kingdom focused? Is your life kingdom focused? Do you have a daily discipline of lifting your eyes off the horizon of the mundane to what God is doing in the world and how he wants, you to, how he wants to use you to bring his kingdom in the lives of others? So that's the first thing we, we see, the, the focus on God's kingdom and what God's doing in the world and reorientating our lives around that. Second thing is Jesus teaches us to pray for our needs. In verses 11 to 13, he says, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts, sorry, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So we see here in this second section, God does care about our physical needs, our lost keys, our work situation, our stresses at home. But our needs are directed by his kingdom concerns. As Christians, we'll see in a few weeks, we, see, we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and every, then everything else falls into place. So as he teaches us to pray about our needs, there's, there's three focuses here. So first, provision of daily necessities, not luxuries. Provision of daily bread, daily necessities. So Jesus is concerned here about our physical provision, that we try, depend on God who provides that our breakfast, while we bought it from the shops or from handcraft or from a cafe or wherever you got your breakfast from, that that's God's provision. Through through human agency, God is providing for you. And God provides for our physical needs. And this is about cultivating a dependence on God to provide. But God also provides for our spiritual sustenance, that Jesus is the bread of life, that uh, he, he feeds us by faith, Uh, to grow as his people. So provision of daily necessities. Second, pardon of sin. We see here, according to Jesus, that our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. We owe a debt to God that we cannot repay, but Jesus pays our debt for us with the blood of his cross. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and promises to forgive us and cleanse us of sin. Now, just as we have been forgiven much, We too are to forgive those who have wronged us. And there's lots that we could say here. And Jesus returns to this idea uh, in verses 14 to 15. Uh, And we're not going to be able to unpack this fully. I point you back to my sermon on anger a few weeks ago where I talk a bit more about this. But suffice it to say that if you've been forgiven by God, so great a debt, how can you not forgive others the little wrongs that they do against us? That as Christians, we ought to be a people of mercy, quickly forgiving those who wrong us. Those who have been forgiven, those who have been forgiven much, love much. The the poet George Herbert put it like this. He that cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass if he would ever reach heaven, for everyone has need to be forgiven. So we pray for the provision of daily necessities, the pardon of sin, and finally protection from evil. The Christian life is not easy. God doesn't promise us a happy, healthy, wealthy life. Rather, the New Testament paints a vivid picture that we will be tested and tempted just like Jesus. And that God's purpose in that is to refine us, to shape us for our good. But the Bible also teaches us that God is faithful, that he will never forsake us, that he promises to be with us, to not test us beyond what we can bear and to protect us from the evil one provision of daily necessities, pardon of sin and protection from evil. As we pray for our needs, what this is doing is we bring them before God. We're cultivating a posture of humility and dependence on God. In contrast to the proud self-sufficiency and independence of our culture, Christians see their need for help. We need God's help. We know our emptiness and weakness and we feel in our bones that we must pray because God is our Father. He loves us. He loves to provide for us. So God wants us to live it in humble, everyday dependence on him, believing that he is our good father who knows what we need even before we ask and he loves to give good gifts to his children. So the Lord's Prayer here, it lifts our eyes up from the horizon of the mundane to God's eternal purposes to bring all things under Christ and invites us to reorientate our lives and submit ourselves to God. Jesus does not here offer tips and tricks and techniques to approach God, but he initiates us into a new relationship to enjoy with God as our Father. And so we see, church, that prayer is not something that we have to do. Prayer is something that we get to do. When you understand how much the Father loves you and delights in you, you want to spend time in his presence. You enjoy being with him. At the moment, at our house, we're loving playing board games with kids, uh, one of their favorites is Uno. Uh, and our kids would just come up to me and they'll say, oh, Daddy, can we play Uno with you this morning? Can we play, U-? like every morning after breakfast, can we play Uno every, every afternoon after dinner? Can we play Uno? And I'm like, yes, yes, 1,000 times yes. I love you. I delight in you. I could think of nothing I'd rather do than be with you and spend time with you. Our Father in heaven loves you as his very own child. He made you to experience intimacy with him. He gave himself, he shed his blood for you. His spirit dwells within you. He offers you freedom and forgiveness, grace and peace, a new start and a new purpose. How could you not want to spend time with this This God who loves you and has given himself for you. You know, we clear our schedules when a friend or a family member flies across the world to visit us. We can't wait to spend time with them. How much more when God, our Father, has crossed the universe to visit us and wants to bless us. Now, I I don't want you guys to leave here feeling guilty. I want us all to leave knowing the privilege that we have to spend time with with God as our Father in prayer and feeling motivated to cultivate a habit of prayer, not from a, not from duty, but from delight. Because God, our Father, delights in you. Now, in the end, the Lord's Prayer points us to the same reality as the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate now. In both the Lord's Prayer and the Lord's Supper, we, we see that our Father loves us so much that He sent His Son to save us. We see that the kingdom has come through Jesus' life and death at the cross and through his glorious resurrection, that Jesus has opened up a new way to God and is bringing his kingdom of peace on the earth. In both, we see that Jesus is the bread of life, that his body was broken for us so that we might receive eternal life from God. In both, we see that God offers us the forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death on the cross where he His body is broken and his blood is shed so that we might be reconciled to God, so that our sins might be dealt with. In the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Prayer, we see God's deliverance from evil, that Jesus has overcome all the powers of evil through the triumph of the cross. And so, as we come to worship God now in song, we also come forward with the Lord's Prayer on our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And there's stations at the front and side, and I invite you as the band leads us to come forward. And as you take the bread that symbolizes Jesus' body broken for you, and as you dip it in the juice, symbolizing Jesus' blood shed for you, come forward with the Lord's Prayer on your heart, remembering that this is the moment where the kingdom has come through Jesus' death for us. That This is the reason why we can call God our Father. I'm going to lead us in the Lord's Prayer now, and we're going to respond. And if you're feeling like you've got things that you need to work through, you've got... practical needs there's going to be a time of prayer available as well as the band leads us i'll be up the back on the prayer team with others in uh, orange lanyards if you've got any need at all come forward we'd love, come up the back we'd love to pray from you for you and the prayer team will also be available after our gathering down the front so please avail yourself of that we're going to respond now let me pray for us using the lord's prayer and then we'll come and worship the father together let's pray Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours now and forever.